evening, everybody. Um, welcome to the LSE. My name is Richard Hilton, and I'm the arts coordinator here. And I'm very pleased to welcome you to tonight's talk, which is the fifth Talking Pictures, um, a series of talks organized uh, to coincide with the exhibition Viewing Restricted, representing poverty. The exhibition's been organized by, the, for those of you who haven't been to previous talks, I'll um, say this again, We've been saying it every night. Um, the exhibition's been organized by the Center for the Study of Global Governance and LSE Arts. And it's currently on show in the Atrium Building, which is in the old, the Atrium Gallery, which is in the old building, just across the way. And for those of you who are interested in seeing the exhibition, um, it will be on after this, so you're welcome to come over and have a look at the exhibition if you're interested. Um, I'm pleased to welcome Mark Saunders and Martin Slavin um, who will each be presenting their own perspectives on the um, real politics implications and effects of the London Olympics. Um, so I'm, I'm very pleased to welcome them here tonight. Um, I should just say in terms of the context of this talk, um, I recall um, going to a talk a couple of years ago by Martin and um, Mark at the Soho Theatre and my abiding memory of the talk or something I took away from it was um, why why is Olympics not just in Greece? Um, and I think, um, I think that might be um, something which might become clearer tonight through their um, respective presentations. Um, each, each speaker will talk for about 20 minutes and then after that there'll be an opportunity for questions and discussion. So I just want to give you a brief um, outline of both of the speakers. Um, Mark Saunders is an independent documentary filmmaker, media activist, and writer. His films include Battle of Trafalgar, The Truth Lies in Rostock 93, Exodus, Movement of Jar People, and Quand le Papier Arrivant. His work has been presented at the London Institute of Contemporary Arts, the National Film Theatre, and the Photographers Gallery, as well as Vork in Vienna, the National Architecture Institute, in the Netherlands and Beaux-Arts in Brussels. He has lectured at Florence University, Florence Uni University School of Architecture and the Royal College of Art and is a visiting lecturer at London College of Communication. Um, his talk tonight is called The Fog of Games, Legacy, Land Grabs and Liberty, um, which is the name of the working title of um, the film um, that he's working on at the moment. Martin Slavin has engaged with photography since receiving his first camera at the age of 14. He learnt about photography by looking at photos, taking pictures, and working in journalism as a photographer, picture researcher, and founder member of the reportage agency Network Photographers. Martin's continuing interest in photographing and writing about urban experiences is encapsulated by his current focus on the 2012 Olympics which is taking place in his neighborhood. Martin's talk is um, titled Reporting the London Olympics. As I said, uh, Martin's going to present first and then uh, Mark will then present and then there'll be an opportunity for um, questions. So I welcome Martin, thank you. Thank you. Um, just a small note before I start. Um, since uh, we are supposed to be activists, uh, there's no such thing as an activist without a pamphlet. Um, and uh, I've got one here, uh, which is 
currently placed uh, by the entrance, but if you want access to these later on, then uh, come and get some. Um, how do you work this thing? It's coming. Uh, what I'm going to do this evening um, is say something briefly uh, about myself and uh, how I got myself into this situation. And uh, second of all, um, I'm going to start talking about uh, the website uh, that the group that I'm a member of, the group is named Games Monitor, uh, have produced over about the last three years. Um, I've lived in Hackney for over 20 years. Uh, on and off. Um, I was away from Hackney from the late 90s and didn't actually return until early 2005. Not long after I came back, uh, the bid for the London Olympics was won and uh, my response to that was, oh, that's very interesting, um, it, very good for the neighbourhood. Uh, and then thinking on about it some more, uh, I realized that it would make a very good subject for a photo reportage documentary. Um, and I think it would be very interesting for you uh, as I go through some of the materials I've got here, uh, if you can spot where the photography is. Um, when I first started looking at this uh, situation, uh, I really, I, my only attitude towards uh, the Olympics was that I f find the idea of watching athletics on television boring. Uh, apart from that, um, when I first heard about it, I thought it was perhaps a good thing. Um, but at that period, I had also recently acquired uh, the broadband internet, and I thought that this would be the ideal medium uh, to start researching the story. Before you can start taking a producing a documentary, uh, you need to have some idea of what is the story. Um, so I started just following my own curiosity and fairly quickly discovered that uh, there are a number of very interesting sources about the Olympics, uh, most of which were academic. Um, a large number of academic geographers, economists, sociologists, planners, and people specializing in sports and tourism had actually been researching the impact of previous Olympics for at least the last 15 years. And the press at the time, in late 2005 into 2006, uh, the main content of the stories about the Olympic that you were getting was it was going to be absolutely marvelous for everybody it was going to transform the East End, um, and that was pretty much the main editorial line for a time. The story that I was finding, however, on uh, the internet, especially amongst academics, uh, was something that was really rather different. For instance, to start with, you had a history to the Olympics. The Olympics, as it was being promoted, uh, in our media was something that was going to be in the future. It was a vision of a, an event. And the most commonly used word that you would read in all of these editorials was fantastic. 
Um, in other words, it was going to be a dreamlike future. Um, and I was quite startled to discover that there was a very consistent view, uh, not only amongst academics, um, but by um, planners who were working in the planning profession, uh, that the history of the Olympics was something where there were quite significant negative impacts. Um, and this actually included our own government, who, now I'm looking for a file which should be sitting at the bottom of the page. <coughs> Don't see it. Ah, got it. Thank you very much. Um, and th this was the, the particular document. It was produced in December 2002 uh, by the Cabinet Office Strategy Unit um, and it was called, as you can see, Game Plan, Strategy for Delivering the Government Sport and Physical Activity Objectives. And I'm reading some notes now uh, that I took about it at the time, um, and I will show you the significant page from that document. Um, in December 2002, Game Plan, a strategy for delivering government support for sport and physical activity objectives, was published by the Cabinet Office Strategy Unit. It examined five types of benefit widely used to make the case for investing in large-scale sports events, urban regeneration, sporting legacy, tourism, celebration and culture, and wider economic uplift. The report said, quote, there are several categories of benefit attributed to mega events by their promoters. We conclude that the quantifiable evidence to support each of the perceived benefits for mega events is weak. The explicit costs of hosting a mega event should be weighed very carefully against the perceived benefits when a bid is being considered, especially given the high risks attached. The message is not don't invest in mega events, it is rather be clear that they appear to be more about celebration than economic returns. And then I'm quoting uh, from the Times, where it was quoting uh, an, another academic. He said, this was a robust report that showed why we should not bid for the Olympics, but it was an inconvenient truth. Almost the moment the ink was dry, there was a volt fast. Stefan Szymanski, a professor at Cass Business School, specializing in the economics of sport, told the Times. The justification for bidding should have been based on evidence placed in the public domain. Instead, key evidence was suppressed or ignored. And then I'm going on to say, a significant body of academic research emphasizing the negative impacts upon previous Olympic cities was ignored, even by the researchers of the Gay Plan Report. The bid document was tainted by selective evidence, overemphasizing existing dereliction and promoting fantastic benefits, which critically understated the overall costs. Now that was the general theme of what I was finding uh, in my researches and that I was, hmm. now I'm lost again. Forgive me for this. Um, just that one is fine. Thank you. 
Um, I was doing a lot of this research on my own, and I thought that it was very interesting, the kind of materials that I was coming up with, but um, it seemed to me that that sort of information was not in the public domain, so I started looking for other people who were interested uh, in looking at the topic, um, and one, of the, one day when I was wandering around the neighborhood uh, with my camera looking for some pictures of the landscape as it existed, I came across a sticker on a lamppost at eye level uh, that said, uh, No to London 2012. Turned out that they uh, were a group of people who had uh, attempted to put up a critical and um, oppositional voice towards this wave of uh, PR-fueled um, euphoria that was coming to them through the press. Um, needless to say, uh, they were barely heard, although they put an awful lot of work into it. Um, and at the time that I was starting to get interested in the subject, uh, they were not particularly active, but I discovered that they had a, uh, an email list to which I started posting some of these uh, research stories that I had. Um, to fast forward, that gradually turned into a group that took up the name Games Monitor, and we were very lucky uh, to come across a, a very good web designer who said that uh, she would design us and host uh, a website, which is the one that you see here, um, and that the whole thing would be done for free. One, one thing I think is important to point out is everything that you see on this website is done by volunteers in their own time. Uh, so what you see in front of you here is our uh, home page. And just to point out the various elements of it, uh, on the left-hand side you have a list of the most recent stories. Uh, on the right, um, a link to our email forum, uh, which is a very useful place for those of us who are have a involved in a continuing process of a critique of the Olympics developments, uh, where we share information to some extent amongst ourselves, but we have, I think at the moment, uh, quite a wide regular readership of over 90 people, uh, to, to my last memory. Uh, there's a, a topics list and um, a list of events. What I would like to do is to scroll down. That's it. One thing I would point out on the site uh, is that there is an enormous number of people who are photographing the Olympic site um, and who are putting these photographs up on a Flickr site. And that's a very interesting um, version of what I would describe as crowd power. Uh, it does tend to be uh, a photography just of the landscape. There's not much what you would describe as commentary about it. Another aspect that I would point out is that we have here uh, a list of books, mostly by academics, about various aspects of the Olympics. Um, one of the stories I would like to point you to is one I came across recently, uh, which is, uh, as it says on the site, a landmark study by Professor Bent 
Schliffbjörg, Schliffbjörg, uh, who analyzed over 250 major transport infrastructure projects and found that 90% went over budget and that the benefits averaged only half of those promised. This was so consistent that Schleifbjerg concluded that it amounts to strategic misrepresentation and that the culprits are politicians and bureaucrats competing for scarce public resources or seeking to get a suspect project off the ground to make political capital. It's quite a long extract from a chapter of his book, but at the end of uh, here, I put a thing about uh, a subsequent academic paper that he published in 2005 where uh, he includes three Olympic projects uh, as fitting this general um, result that he found from his researches. Um, another story that is of interest uh, is one again I came across fairly recently showing that uh, according to an organization called the Global Accountability Report, the IOC is among the world's least accountable organizations. Um, they have a strange system where they co-opt themselves. They welcome people onto this uh, large organization of 115 people. And this co-optation process, which is an aspect of Swiss corporation law, um, is described as being non-representative and insular by design. Gaining access to decision-making stru structures is therefore difficult for external stakeholders and may, in the case of the IOC, account for some of the recent history of corruption. And then there's a quote from a wonderful book by Andrew Jennings and Claire Sambrook called The Great Olympic Swindle, in which they say, for some of us, the freeloading in bidding cities, college scholarships, ticket rackets, shakedowns for gifts and hospitality for members' extended families were only a symptom of the problem. The physical corruption was the offspring of their fundamental moral corruption, their refusal to tolerate democratic elections to their ranks or make themselves accountable to sport. Um, all I can do in the time I've got available is just give you a very quick glimpse into the kind of thing uh, that we have on our website. Um, and to uh, encourage you perhaps to have a look at it. Um, the last story I would like to show you um, is uh, a story about uh, what's happening to the River Lee. Uh, and this is a, an excerpt from a film that was uh, shot last year. And it run for about five minutes. Springtime on the Hackney Marsh at East London. An area with serious deprivation. The sun is shining, the birds are singing, and the bream have migrated up the River Lee to spawn. This spawning cycle has been going on for many centuries and is now under threat from the Prescott Channel, which will block the waterway. This barrier is part of the construction for the London Olympics in 2012. Local residents wonder if this will be the last year these fish will be spawning in Hackney. But it's amazing how quickly they pick you up. So here you have all these fish hanging out, um, waiting to do what they want to do, whenever they're going to do it. 
and what they're essentially waiting for is the river to be really low and slow and clear and then a computer program somewhere opens up the sluices and those conditions are destroyed. And we are in the middle of some of the worst social deprivation in the country and it's got this and it's not being celebrated. Well, this is the tape grass that they spawn on um, and these are the lowest and slowest conditions I've seen this year. These are the best spawning conditions, that's why I think there's so many of them have showed up because they know exactly what they're about, these fish. British waterways are building uh, a massive new double lock system that will take 350 tonne barges. They say that the reason that they are doing this is to enable 50% of the construction materials uh, traffic to be taken off local roads, which is a praiseworthy objective, um, and to be put on the waterways. Uh, and it's part of a scheme, they say, to bring London's canal waterways back into productive use. And Prescott Channel is their bastard child, and part of it is, beside these two 350-tonne locks, uh, they are building a barrage of what are called two fish belly gates, it's kind of slightly different version of the Thames barrage. At low water they can sit in the bottom of the whole sluice lock assembly, but what they're going to do with them is bring them up and impound the River Lee at a high tide level, permanently more or less. Instead of a twice daily pattern of uh, high tide and low tide and different uh, creatures and uh, other smaller creatures that they feed on, um, having a life cycle which these fish here embody, uh, it'll be like the canal. This will be just solid all the time, won't it? Yeah. And as we can see, these fish are hanging around, getting ready to spawn, uh, because the tide is low. Yeah, yeah. And if you remove that low tide, you remove what they're here for. And where else would you see this in London? Uh, they've just opened the sluices. See that bit of oil go past? Uh, Flow's going speeding yeah, up, isn't right, it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Show's over, guys. Yeah, I think, unless I miss my guess, what we're seeing here, you can see the flow rate of the water has gone up. Yeah, the water has got cloudier. Yeah. And someone or some machine has, you know, some computer program has decided that that's low enough. And then what usually happens is that the, you see the level rise and the conditions that they're here for just disappear. Mm. British waterways maintain certain height levels and certain flow rates. I mean, it's very important to do that. Um, but not to be aware that there is a spawning window with these fish is to be wearing blinkers, you know, um, and to mess with a, a, a very ancient natural pattern of behaviour. 
Um, so life must be very frustrating for a bream in the River Lee. I can't see how it can be maintained. This spawning behaviour, as you can see, critically depends on low and slow flow rate down amongst the take grass um, of the clearest, freshest water they can find. That's why they're here. Um, I would like to see people from British Waterways and English Nature come and talk to us about this and explain good reasons why this tidal phenomenon can be removed um, and how you're going to put something back in its place which has got this kind of uh, beauty really. Um, can somebody persuade me that this will not disappear and can be replaced with something that is at least as good as this? I wait to hear of it. You know, all you've got to do is come and look at it. And it opens a window onto something you just didn't know existed. Now, if you can't see that, I could tell you about it all day long and, you know, you would say, yeah, it all sounds very interesting, but what's on the other channel? because we're not France and um, I think that if you remember at that time there was a, a lot of um, uh, uh, anti-French uh, a lot of anti-French uh, sentiment because they'd refused to join the uh, um, alliance um, uh, against the, in the war on terror and um, so maybe we ended up having the Olympics as a reward for our role in such an event uh, it certainly um, took even the organisers of the bid by surprise that we won it. But as I say, that's another story. Um, what I want to do, um, talk about today, particularly, as the title suggests, is, um, is, is about the context and the legacy, land grab and liberty aspect of the Olympics. Um, the Olympics is a mega project. A lot of the features that have happened here in London are exactly what happens everywhere the Olympics goes. It's not particular to here, it's the modus operandi. 
Um, and I think that um, um, it, it needs to be kind of unpacked, and um, I'm going to attempt to do some of that. So this map that's up here, um, can I point on it? Yes, I can. This is a, a map that's kind of useful because it locates um, a couple of um, aspects of um, the so-called legacy, which is a lot's made about the legacy in terms of the benefits for London, the regeneration. Um, um, and um, actually, what it really is, 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 um, is actually aggregating a lot of already existing regeneration projects. Um, some, like the Thames Gateway project, is, is the biggest regeneration project in the whole of Europe. And that sort of swathe of orange there is the area which has been intensely uh, invested in with public money. Um, you also have um, this line here, which is the Lee. Um, um, sorry, there's a, sorry, it's not that at all. It's above the city airport. You have uh, the Lee Valley, uh, which also pretty much continuously since Abercrombie's plan 1945 has been planned for development and regeneration of the Lee Valley. Um, you've also got in the same uh, catchment area of City Airport. Um, you've also had, uh, it's right on the doorstep of the Docklands. Um, all of these are projects, uh, and Stratford City, <laughs> not to forget Stratford City, major, major regeneration project, major public money investing in infrastructure. And there's a kind of double accounting. Whenever you hear uh, the claims of the benefits of the Olympics, you need to double check what's going on because it's kind of double accounting. Because very often those benefits are benefits that were going to happen in that area anyway. Um, so, uh, so I think it's um, certainly very questionable um, what the real benefits of, of the London Olympics are. Um, as I said, if you look, uh, and there's probably a lot of stuff on Games Monitor and various other sites, where you can read up of the experience of Barcelona, very, uh, Athens and, uh, and, and most of the cities w that the Olympics descended on, um, have had um, a, a lot of negative effects. Uh, one of the, um, uh, one of the uh, uh, very often trumpeted um, benefits, legacy benefits of the Olympics is this thing called the Olympic Park. Um, um, and, uh, and this is kind of rolled up into this idea that the, uh, the, uh, the Olympic Delivery Authority say that the Olympics, uh, London Olympics, is going to be the greenest ever, um, kind of whatever that might mean. Um, actually, what, what um, uh, it, it, I would say it's like kind of green in the same way that the green zoning Baghdad is green. Um, basically, the site of the Olympic Village uh, and the, the whole Olympic site, which is now surrounded by a blue wall, it's, it's actually very, very strategic. You can see from this map that in a way, and, and I probably have another one a bit lower down, um, um, it's, uh, this is a, a, a little, uh, um, yes, you can all see that. Uh, that's a, a, a small section of the um, so-called um, uh, Olympic Park. Um, the reason why I compare it with the, the green zone in, in Baghdad is that it's actually very strategic to, to actually take over 
as the Olympic Delivery, Delivery Authority has, this huge area at this nexus of the, 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 uh, the, the Lee Valley, the airport, it's on the doorstep of Docklands, it's, um, um, it, it's, um, it's, it's kind of very strategic. It's also, in a way, the backyard of these five uh, so-called Olympic boroughs. Tower Hamlets, Newham, um, various uh, five, five boroughs that border on to this area. So you could say it's a kind of classic example of what's known as kind of on the edge of the mapism type thing, where each borough maybe forgets its backyard a little bit. Everyone's focused more into the kind of urban centres. So it may have been neglected, but as Martin's pointed out, it's also um, a, a natural environment. And um, you know, n nature can be sometimes a little scruffy looking, um, but that's what it, that's what it was. The, the, so, so the blue wall isn't really, that's going around the Olympic site, isn't really the limit of the authority of the ODA. It's actually the beginning of their reach out into all the surrounding areas, and there are a lot of very strategic areas. You can see from this map that actually the only green bits that are on this map are the already existing Hackney Marshes and Victoria Park, which are um, in the case, you know, the, the newest of those is, uh, is more than 100 years old. Um, and uh, the actual area that they're calling the Olympic Park is, is densely urbanised. Um, I have another picture of the same site. Oh, this is quite nice. This, is, this just shows you, uh, some of you may be familiar with the story of the allotments. Again, I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but uh, there's a lot of video on this site about the allotments. Uh, but that shows you the old allotments, which are now being destroyed and ripped up. Um, and how they fit in this new park. Um, and as you can see, it's not really a park at all. Um, so, um, and there's another image of the so-called park. Um, so, so we're not really looking at, um, at, at, at any real meaningful green legacy. Uh, most of the um, developments that are there are about, as Martin said, they're, they're about sort of flood control so that you can get more river canal side um, uh, um, luxury apartment developments. They're about um, a kind of, kind of almost golf course type landscaping that creates nice kind of jogging paths and things like that, but very little to do with a natural environment. And, and, I th and I would say that you know, one, of the, one of the features of mega projects is that they become an excuse to kind of come in and take over. You know, people have been mulling over all the sensitive e environmental issues around the Lee Valley. Um, there's been endless consultations about the city airport. You know, I was actually covering stuff about the city airport in the 80s when every, all the residents of the area were promised they would never ever fly jets out of the city airport. Uh, I, have, you know, I have it on tape, it will be in the film. Um, um, and um, so, there's, so basically what you can do with a mega project like the Olympics, and this is what it's done in every city it descends on, is you suddenly go, come on, we've got to hurry up, we've only got four years, we haven't got time to consult people. The planning application for the Olympics was the biggest planning application in Europe ever produced. 
it was very difficult to get access to, re to look at it. And even if you did, it was so big. Um, it, someone, maybe someone in the audience later can say in more detail, but it was kind of deemed almost impossible to, to actually read it in the time available. So, so you actually have um, um, a, a mega project which um, is, is a, a, a very questionable legacy. I mean, I would also say that if you said that the legacy that comes from it is about encouraging sport, the experience in Australia is actually, the Olympics is a television event, it's not a sports event for most people, it's TV. In Australia, famously an outdoor lifestyle uh, country, television viewing rocketed during the Olympics and never really kind of dipped down again. So. It's actually, um, you know, it's, it's not really, um, uh, I mean, how many people are really going to be sitting in the stadium when it's happening? If you wanted to encourage um, uh, um, the, uh, the uh, take-up of sport, surely the way to do it would be to invest in small local sports facilities across the country. You know, we're, we're living in, the, in London, of course, um, you know, we tend to forget about everything beyond Zone 6. Um, but, I mean, all of the investment is coming into an area which has had decades and decades of public taxpayers' money poured into it, supposedly always about some kind of trickle-down theory about how it's going to benefit the local people. We'll see how many local people can afford to be living in this part of London in the next kind of decade or so. Um, I think what I'll do is um, I'll just show you a little bit of um, a little bit of video. This is um, so. This is um, the only thing I've ever seen on TV about the the legacy. I hope it's loud enough. This is Stratford City, a one and a half billion pound retail monster going up alongside London's Olympic Park. Stratford City is just a short walk from Stratford railway station. Immediately behind it is the main Olympic Stadium. Next door to it, Stratford International Railway Station, and over there, the Athletes' Village. During the Games, this shopping centre will effectively be the main entrance to the Olympic Park. It'll be the front door. Uh, it'll be a great address. It links the regional and the international station, and this is how the public will enter uh, the game site. I think the lessons that we've learned from prior Olympics that we've been involved with has been that to, to have a vibrant piece of infrastructure like this uh, adjacent to or at the heart of the Games is a real positive contribution. But is a shopping complex really the best we can come up with? Not everyone thinks so. Stratford City is due to open its doors in 2011, at least 12 months before the Games. Today, London's mayor unveiled a countdown clock, counting down to the shopping, not the Olympics, when it finally worked. Boris Johnson believes it's the first real sign of an Olympic legacy. This is a chance for Londoners to understand that we're going to get a legacy from these games long before 2012. This is £1.5 billion investment in one of the biggest shopping areas in Britain. It's the biggest inward investment this country is seeing. It's going to generate 18,000 jobs even before the Olympic Games have begun. And I think it's a great message to get across. A shopping mall might not be everyone's idea of an Olympic legacy, but there's no denying it is true to one Olympic promise that the Games would transform the landscape in this part of London. Okay, well you heard a few Australian accents in there. Um, the first one you heard was a guy called David Higgins. He's the chief executive of the um, Olympic Development Agency. He's basically been responsible for allocating contracts. Sorry, allocating contracts 
um, primarily to do with um, the Olympic Village and uh, also this uh, development in Westfield, uh, uh, the shopping centre. What's kind of interesting about David Higgins is that um, he, um, uh, he's basically, uh, his history is that he used to work for some people called um, Land Lease. Have I got that right? Was it Lend Lease? Sorry, Lend Lease. He used to be the chief executive of Lend Lease. Um, he left there, he went to English Heritage for a short time, and now he's the chief exec of the uh, ODA. Um, he, he actually, um, he's the person who's decided that in an open competition, the best tender was uh, Lend-Lease, which is happy for Lend-Lease. Lend-Lease are like kind of serial contract winners for Olympics. They also won the Olympics uh, bid in, in Australia. And actually, at the same time that they got that contract, in Australia, there were articles about how Lend-Lease um, was, uh, was uh, failing and it was in serious danger of, of collapse and happily um, the Olympic contract saved them and um, they're doing very well out of it. Uh, they're doing very well out of it because um, the most recent article about the Olympic Village is uh, it was um, Tessa Jowell announcing that this one billion pound, I love the way everything's a billion these days, you know how much they're going to cost? A billion. Um, there's only, I think there's only like two and a half, less than 3,000 dwellings they're building in this Olympic village and it's going to cost a billion. Um, and um, uh, happily for, for Len Lease, they, they were going to kind of build it and make some money, oh God, sorry, uh, make some money out of, um, out of it. Um, they decided that they can't really make very much money out of it, so uh, the taxpayers are paying for the whole lot now, um, 100%. Uh, they're calling it nationalising the Olympic Village. Um, there's someone here from Clay's Lane, I remember in 2007-06, uh, the, the residents of Europe's largest purpose-built housing cooperative were being promised that the Olympic Village would be uh, where they would be relocated after the Games. Um, um, also, uh, um, very happily, also um, uh, Westfield, um, the big shopping centre developer, um, they were going to build that anyway because it's part of the Stratford City, but they decided it wasn't really worth it and, and happily for them, the ODA, their mate Higgins, um, pumped, in, um, pumped in a hell of a lot of money. Um, uh, I have that figure somewhere. Uh, millions, of course. Um, not quite a billion, but a fraction of a billion um, to, to, uh, to make that scheme go ahead. Um, um, yeah, 600, 600 million. Um, I've basically, um, there, there's, been, um, you know, there's been a lot of criticism about, well, why wouldn't you just kind of make that uh, a legacy? One legacy you could have is if you're going to build a, a, a village, Olympic Village with public money, that could be social housing, it could be housing for key workers. Uh, David Higgins apparently doesn't agree with that. Um, he, um, his argument is that um, um, sorry, I'm, I'm <laughs> well, one of my problems today is I suddenly had to put everything onto an app on, uh, onto the website and I didn't do a, a good cut and paste job on my uh, text here. Uh, basically, he's arguing that um, 
you know, that, that isn't a good idea, basically, to, to make a public uh, legacy out of it. And um, um, uh, so his, 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 he'd rather just give it to, to uh, Lend-Lease. Um, so, um, so there's been a, um, so as I said, there's a lot of people who uh, David Higgins seems to have allocated um, uh, 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 contracts to people who um, uh, certainly he has some history with. Um, he, uh, he he kind of uh, denies that um, um, uh, that there's any kind of uh, anything questionable about that. Um, sorry. And so what he's saying, his, argu sorry, 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 his argument is in, in 2013, this is Higgins, why it shouldn't be used as social housing legacy or whatever. In 2013, there will be a significant shortage of private housing for everybody in London, not just key workers. We don't want to turn the village into an estate that is imbalanced. <laughs> if, uh, if, you, if you have just one demographic living there, it won't work. So that's interesting. So he's, uh, he, you know, as I said, everything about this is a huge area. It's a very strategic part of London. This guy is like kind of making up policy on the hoof, um, and uh, pretty, pretty uh, independently of any other um, kind of discussions. Uh, I think I'm running seriously over. Would I be? Uh? Okay. I just want to show you. Um, um, I don't want to show Lammers, man. I don't want to show that. Um, I think what I'll show you, actually, this is kind of... Um, the, the, how long have I got, actually? Five? Okay, okay. So, so sorry, I'm going to just jump straight to the liberty part of what I was going to talk about. Um, there's been quite there's been quite a lot said about the uh, the use of anti-terror laws and things like this, um, which will be really stepped up uh, during the Olympics. But there's all kinds of other sort of um, uh, slightly more uh, less visible, and I think a lot of people don't know about the way that various uh, aspects of our liberties are being curtailed by. The Olympics, uh, I'll give you one example, which is they have this thing called the Cultural Olympiad. And of course, a lot of um, uh, arts organisations, particularly in London, um, um, uh, and as a lot of public money for the arts is being diverted into the Olympics, are hoping to benefit from the Cultural Olympiad. In order to, um, to log on to the uh, Olympiad site, simply to find out about the terms and conditions for applying for money, you have to tick a box which says that you basically agree um, it, um, not to do anything um, which would have an adverse effect on or embarrass any games body or any official supporter or sponsor of the games. That would include Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Adidas, no problem with that. BP, uh, British Airways, um, and uh, the uh, uh, EDF, uh, big big coal users. Um, so um, uh, so you're not allowed. So it, even just to apply or to find out how to apply, you have to agree to those terms and conditions. Martin mentioned, he, was it Natural England you talked about, or someone who you might want to go and talk to about the effects of the river? 
British water rights. Well, they're not in this list, but the, uh, but the, the, the other kind of people who are involved in the Cultural Olympiad, uh, so-called delivery partners, includes all of the UK Arts Councils, the BBC, Heritage Link, CABE, as it's known, Natural England, uh, and more interesting for me, uh, they've got a part of the Olympiad called Film Nation, which is supported by the UK Film Council, Film Education, First Light Movies, Screen West Midlands, Screen Yorkshire and Film London. So basically there's a lot of kind of co-opting and um, a lot of people who were getting, the BBC to their credit were actually doing quite a lot of critical reporting on things like the allot allotments in 2005-2006. Uh, but it's kind of tailed off significantly. Um, and I should imagine it will tail off completely by the time the Cultural Olympiad gets going. Um, the, other, uh, thing that, sorry, the other thing that happened to us is that we, uh, um, uh, for the first time, we did a, a, a kind of training, media training, uh, for what they call the hard to reach in a, a, a very uh, run-down part of southeast London. Um, and it was a free uh, skills day. And uh, we were asked, we had to get all, these, all the participants to sign um, a, a kind of a, a, a consent form, which included a lot of personal data. Which um, um, the, the kind of personal data I'm talking about was um, that on the same sheet of paper, you had to put your name and address, your national insurance number, your immigration status. Uh, age, gender and ethnicity were optional, so you could say, prefer not to say. Um, disability and other medical information, family status, employment status, any benefits claimed, activity to gain employment and, qualify, uh, and qualifications held. If you didn't sign it, you couldn't come on our free day. We didn't know it was anything to do with the Olympics. We were uh, commissioned by the skill set, but skill set like a lot of our agencies, cultural, social agencies, are being co-opted by the Olympics. So this information that these uh, hard-to-reach people, I mean, it's difficult to get people to come along anyway, to get them to sign a form like this. I know a lot of those kind of people won't use an Oyster card because they think it's too much monitoring. Um, serious. Um, so, uh, so we kind of questioned this. Uh, and we were told by Skillset that they were being kind of, in effect, forced to, to collect this kind of information by the London Development Agency's Olympic Legacy Directorate, which sounds good. Um, and they, uh, they want to keep that information until the year 2013. Uh, no, no, they were 2000, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, until, until uh, the, uh, the, sorry, until December the 30, 31st December 2020. Um, when we sort of said, well, look, you know, it's really, if nothing else, it's not good practice to get someone's name connected to all that kind of data. Uh, we were told totally inflexible, no way it can be separated. We contacted Liberty. Um, they said it's illegal um, and, uh, uh, and that we should bring it up with the um, so, uh, I, uh, um, um, Information Commissioner's Office. Uh, who were independent, you know, um, of the government, and they said, well, you know, uh, you, you, collect, you, have, you know, skill sets probably acting on instructions from the London Development Agency and ultimately central government. Um, and uh, people clearly have a choice as to whether they complete such a form. This is the, I, sorry, this is the I, uh, Information Commission's Office response. 
but I people have a, a, a choice as to whether they complete such form, but I appreciate this may affect whether they obtain a placement. Uh, so he didn't see anything, or he or the caseworker didn't see anything wrong with that. So that's just an example of the kind of thing that's going on. And I think that um, um, the problem is, is that um, you know, we do need to be extremely critical of these kind of projects. I mean, it's not too late. There are still things to be um, argued and discussed over. And, uh, and if nothing else, as Richard pointed out, I very strongly suggest that there should be a campaign to just like never again. The Olympics should go back to Atlanta, Coca-Cola's home city, uh, which is basically what, who runs it, um, and, and it should stay there. And if they don't want it, it should go back to Greece somewhere. Um, I, I want to um, just finish up, if I may, with, uh, I think you'll enjoy this. Um, uh, it's a little bit of video um, that um, actually the bid people uh, put in um, for, um, um, for building the stadium. It's kind of, I mean, I've described it as post-ironic. I mean, basically it starts off with that kind of great British symbol of planning corruption, Battersea Power Station, and it kind of gets worse from there, it goes on. Uh, but I'll just let this play through. It's quite short. Uh, 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 well, it's four minutes, but I think you'll like the front bit. Um, and um, um, I think that's probably... I'll end on that. So if it gets to... If, it's, if we go over, but I'll just press play. And um, we, we at least want to get to the bits where the Docklands invades. That's good. Welcome to the next stage in our journey to the Olympic and the Paralympic Games in London in 2012. And I will never tire of saying that. The Olympic spirit is about finding the best in ourselves. London 2012 will be that and more.
some um, microphones that will be handed to you. So if you could wait until the microphone comes to you, because this is being podcast, and for people who listen to this on the um, internet, um, it won't make much sense if they can't hear your questions. So if you could just wait till the um, um, microphone comes to you. So. Um, Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. All right, sorry. I'm from the University of Illinois at Chicago. We're a candidate finalist for the 2016 games, and we came here with some colleagues to do some comparative research. I've had great access. I've walked from Stratford, physically basically walked from Stratford down to Greenwich in the Lee Valley. What do you propose for economic development without the Olympics? benefits of the Olympics, that it will bring jobs, that it will bring uh, infrastructural development, that it will bring skills training, uh, that it will bring uh, an improvement of the natural environment, uh, and all the other things that the Olympics says that it will bring. You can achieve all of those quicker, better, and cheaper without the Olympics. It's that simple. The Olympics is just a, a necessary excrescence that gets in the way, drains money away from all of those kinds of projects, uh, and leaves you with having to pay too much rent on redundant equipment. Montreal's only just finished paying for the um, 68, 70 Olympics. Is that where you're from? Sorry, I didn't hear. No, I'm from Chicago. All right, okay, sorry. So are you keen on, are you, may I ask a question, are you keen on the Olympics in Chicago? No, I'm, no, I'm here doing research okay. for university. Uh, I, I think your statement about the, the, the first statement you made, the second speaker, sorry, um, about the Lee Valley and the Thames Gateway, that there was already a significant amount of investment and infrastructure money is wrong. Uh, the presence of the Olympics will almost certainly take all that away. And it's, uh, we'll never get the Thames Gateway because of it. The money that was available in the first case was not enough to get past Beckton, and even the Docklands Corporation couldn't get past the Royals going eastwards. And yet Peter Hall had said there was a and others uh, 10 years, 15 years ago had said there was a desperate need to go eastwards with the third London city. And if anything, the Olympics will simply push development up the Lee Valley and not eastward down the gateway, which already has 22 separate authorities messing about with it, so that the presence of the Olympics and the investment, and particularly the fact that there's now public bailing out of the investment, will mean that London's strategic requirement for a, um, an eastward development down the Thames Gateway is almost certainly doomed, I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I would agree with that too. Can I just add one brief commentary to that, which is that uh, one of the uh, rotating uh, chief executives of the Thames Gateway Corporation, in fact, 
complained very loudly about how much money was being drained away from that project. And that was about a year ago. And subsequently left the job. Yeah, you can get some of the minutes of those meetings online where you can see that the boroughs involved are very concerned about the negative effects of the Olympics. Uh, I'd like to make a couple of points. Um, one of them relates to this uh, idea of regeneration and I think it's true to say that the London Olympics have slowed down the development uh, in the area. The Stratford City development was already happening regardless of the Olympics uh, and the Olympic Delivery Authority are very keen to take credit for that. But there's another issue which is what kind of regeneration and regeneration for whom? The Olympic Park has been completely emptied of everybody that was in it, businesses and residents, and they won't be moving back in. It'll be a different social class that moves back in. And uh, another point is uh, the blue fence has actually gone down as being replaced by a 5,000 volt electric fence. There is going to be a Royal Navy battleship loaded with missiles in the River Thames. The RAF is going to be flying drone aircraft over the Olympic site during the Olympics, also loaded with missiles. There are already attack dogs in the Olympic Park. The kind of area they're going to produce is going to be kind of quasi-military. And I strongly suspect that it'll still have that flavor when the Olympics is over. It's not my kind of idea of regeneration. I think it'll be a very unpleasant, probably quite sterile area. Um, personally, I'm quite looking forward to the 2012 Games. Um, it sounds to me, though, that your objections have come five years too late because you know, we've won the Games, um, the park is, uh, it's already been, um, the ODA have already taken us over, the stadium's going up, and all the major decisions have already been made. So, uh, you know, you're not kind of, um, you're wasting your time. You came here. I'm not wasting oh, No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm going out anyway. So. Okay. But I, I was wondering Enjoy if you'd like to respond. I mean, okay. you're not actually going to have it's any never, It's never too late to be critical. And also, as I said at the end of my sec, I mean, this is going to go, it's going to descend on another city and another city. It might be too late for people living in East London, but it's not too late for the next, you know, every four years, there's going to be someone who clobbered by the Olympics and people need to learn. There needs to be an accumulation of knowledge so the next time people uh, know what's coming down. You know, my response to that is don't confuse myself or Games Monitor with a rabbit in the headlines. We have been actually very useful and instrumental uh, in helping to set up a group in Chicago called No Games 2016. When uh, the IOC visited uh, Chicago, I think it was about a week ago, <coughs> uh, that group put out about 300 demonstrators uh, out into the streets. Uh, they were interviewed both on uh, television in Chicago quite significantly about their criticisms about the uh, Olympics. Um, and they were actually uh, also spoken to by mem various members of the IOC who were interested to hear that contrary to what they'd heard from the city of Chicago, 
there did appear to be a significant resistance uh, to the Olympics, which was very well informed, partly because they had picked up on the kind of information that we've pulled together, the kind of information that has been pulled together by other Olympic cities. There is growing a movement which is called uh, World Olympic Watch. Um, and one of the very happy coincidences of the visit of the IOC to Chicago, which is a notoriously politically corrupt uh, entity and is also broke, um, <laughs> The, um, there was a, a demonstration by 3,000 policemen on exactly the same day, which was seen by the IOC, um, and some of those were p policemen were wearing T-shirts with the right outline of a body on it, um, and they were also, some of them, wearing some of the logos of the No Games 2016. And uh, that kind of uneasy feeling that things are not as they appear to be as you've been told them by the administration of Chicago is exactly the kind of thing that encourages the, the IOC to go somewhere where the profits are easier to make. So don't confuse us with a rabbit in the headlights. Hi. Um, yeah, thanks very much for your talk. So you presented um, a number of forceful moral arguments, social arguments, economic arguments against the Olympics, and you hinted at how, sorry, you didn't hint, you said explicitly that there needs to be a campaign saying never again. A bit of an edgy question, if I may, talking strategy about that campaign. Do you think that there might be a case for a, a direct action, perhaps trying to shut down the Olympics for one of the days? Um, I, I'm not sure, I, I mean, maybe. But I mean, I think the um, um, I think the, the the main thing about it is that, um, for instance, it's at the moment the uh, International Olympic Committee, the IOC, has ambassadorial status, uh, and uh, and then they dictate. Actually, having a park is a condition of having the Olympics. It's not like something they can wrap it up like it's a legacy. It's a condition. There has to be a, a, an Olympic park. Um, so I would say that in terms of the strategy, the strategy is is that you don't you take away ambassadorial status from the people who don't represent anyone of the IOC, and you create a space somewhere on the planet which has like ambassador, ambassador, embassy type status, where the Olympics can happen outside of because every country. Uh, exploits the Olympics for self-aggrandizement. I mean, people can criticize China because of its human rights, but every country that gets it, that's what they do. That's how they use it, and that's what's going to happen here, which is why the Cultural Olympiad, I think, is going to be quite funny to watch and see how they actually try and promote um, what's going on. But direct action, it depends on what you mean by direct action. I think that the... Um, um, the kind of uh, the kind of things that are really going to eventually change things is public opinion and people understanding that when they're promised the earth by the uh, people who are kind of pushing the IOC's demands on the city, that people are going to stand up to it. Um, that, that certainly. Given the uh, convincing arguments you've made about the negative aspects of, of the development. What are the motives of the people who are pushing it through? Um, I would always say follow the money. Yeah, Jeff, the orange 
Hi there. Um, I was lucky enough to write my master dissertation last year um, on this topic, and I got a good mark. <laughs> but uh, one thing that I've noticed in a lot of the literature, it doesn't really stress something that you've mentioned was the, the lack of accountability of the IOC. And they literally own the Olympic brand, and they literally rent it out to the host city. Why isn't there enough? Why isn't there isn't there enough um, uh, interest or investigation into how the IOC allows themselves to walk away from the minute they grant the city um, the right to host a game until the opening ceremonies? They're very laissez-faire. They don't interfere with the ODA. They allow Locog and the ODA to to bear the brunt of um, of your, of, your, of your attempts to discredit them, which is very valid. Um, why isn't there enough investigation into the, into the role of the IOC and in allowing this to happen? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, in fact, there has been quite a lot of investigation, um, particularly by um, Andrew Jennings, uh, a journalist. Uh, the book that's on our reading list, which is called The Great Olympic Swindle, um, was preceded by another one which I think is called Fool's Gold mm -hmm. um, or, and the, the, the Lords of the Rings and he has been a very persistent uh, investigator in great detail of the uh, endemic corruption that existed and essentially still exists within the IOC um, and there's another very interesting book which is again on our reading list which is called The, the Five Ring Circus by Chris Shaw and uh, he has looked at that in um, one aspect of his book. And uh, for me, the outstanding piece of information that he has produced is that the IOC as an entity doesn't pay tax anywhere in the world. Yeah, they, they are the weak underbelly of the whole Olympic project because they're not accountable. It's highly questionable. I mean, you know, the reason it didn't go to Athens uh, in, in 2000 uh, was because Coca-Cola wanted it in Atlanta. I mean, it's just so beholden to corporate interests that that's exactly the, the weak underbelly and the more, the more scrutiny of who they are, what gives them their power, the better. Uh, there is actually one additional answer I'd like to give to the gentleman over there about um, what should one be looking at in relation to the Olympics. I would come up with one name, Ray O'Rourke, <laughs> the chairman of uh, Lang O'Rourke, if you put that name into the um, Games Monitor website, you'll discover how this gentleman um, has, with the adhesion of a limpet to a bar of gold, uh, and someone who almost never gives press interviews, um, has moved from an advisory capacity in relation to the Olympic project uh, into sitting um, at the center of what's called the delivery partner which has control of every single contract by all the uh, subsidiary subcontractors on the website, on the um, Olympic site. Um, you know, he's uh, a very skilled individual at promoting his own interests. Yeah, I mean, maybe I didn't say enough about it, but it's, it represents a massive transfer of public money into private hands. I mean, millions and millions is going into Westfield, which was going to be built anyway, but they said they were going to pull out, and they got. I, I, I find the. I, I remember a hundred million, 
they got um, to build it. There's also um, the, 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 the whole of the Olympic Village is all being, basically the whole way it works is that public money is used to pay for everything, the stage, the theatre and everything, and then they just come in and put on the event and sell TV rights. So it's completely risk-free for them. And, um, and uh, you know, the whole Olympic Village, everyone was fobbed off with the idea the Olympic Village was going to be made with private money. No taxpayers' money was going to go in because they were going to make money out of it. Now the 100% of it is being paid for by, by, uh, by the government saying, <coughs> we'll make that money back by selling it off. Well, you know, so, I mean, so th there are a lot of financial interests. And, and as I was trying to make clear, it's also a way of coming in and cashing in on, on all the public infrastructure that's gone into Stratford. I mean, why the hell wasn't the Olympics in another UK city where maybe new infrastructure could have been uh, built? That would have been impressive. But this is just on the back of existing um, infrastructure. And something else to add as a, as a useful trail to follow um, is... Uh, one of the sponsors of the Olympic Games is a multinational uh, computer company called Atos Origin. You'll see them as one of the uh, symbols. Mm -hmm. um, I would uh, encourage you to, again, you can look up Atos Origin uh, on the Games Monitor website. Um, but briefly, the story of Atos Origin is that they, uh, over the last decade at least, have been uh, an aggressively growing company who have marketed themselves at particularly China and India in terms of expanding their market and they realized that um, the Olympic Games was a key project to sell themselves into and to become a sponsor of because uh, they were very excited about this prior to the Beijing Olympics. They signed a long-term contract <coughs> with the IOC uh, about being the um, one of the software partners for the Olympics. But their particular um, aspect that fascinated me, I mean, we're only a small group of people. We don't have the kind of resources where we can research a lot of these things properly, but you see the iceberg. And um, one of the uh, ways in which the Olympic Games actually manages to function is that it calls for a, a large number of volunteers to get so excited about the idea of being part of the Olympics, that they will, uh, especially people who are unemployed and underemployed in this area, will very eagerly put themselves forward and they are encouraged by job centers and such to put themselves forward uh, because they will get w work experience in this uh, context by doing things like carrying athletes' uh, clothes around in boxes. But the Atos origin connection is that when it comes to um, they, I think, manage the uh, information architecture for handling all of the results for the Olympics and feeding those out to broadcasting organisations in particular. And uh, in relation to the London Olympics, they will be employing, when I last read about it, about 1,400 of their staff to do this. But they will also be getting the benefit of something over 2,500 volunteers who are going to do the number crunching. Now, this is a firm who are getting direct um, economic benefit out of this free labor, and they've done this before in the Beijing Olympics, um, and I think that, you know, they're worthy of investigation.
Now all those volunteers will have to sign one of those data forms. Yeah, I'd like, like to make a couple of comments. Um, in fact, the gentleman down here and this one here, I think, in a sense, talk about the same thing. You said, asked, you know, what is it that uh, drives this? I think you have to look at a coalition of interests, actually, political, sports, bodies, media, and commercial interests, construction companies, and such like, who all have um, things to gain. In the case of um, Stratford, they are clearing a large area of land, which will move from one owner to another. Uh, for example, land which is at present held by industrial owners would have been sold or could have been sold to um, housing developers at a greatly increased price. That land is no longer available to those industrial owners to sell. It's now going to be sold by the LDA. The LDA have gained that land at industrial level compensation. They will sell it at housing development compensation. Um, so this is then um, put in the context of a supposed regeneration program Commercial interests will gain from this. In fact, uh, Jason Pryor, the uh, master planner, specifically stated this in an article in an interview with the property newsletter, that this was an opportunity for property developers. So you looking at the way in which um, particular commercial interests can pick up. But politicians also have something to gain out of this. They want to attach themselves, just like Mr. Uh, Brown immediately gave Hoy, well, I think, uh, is it Chris Hoy, I think his name, um, a knighthood and so on. They're immediately going to want to try and pick up. London, Britain is now bidding for just about every single sporting event it can think of. Um, in terms of, we've got the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, where actually there is also a website which is called Games Monitor, which is uh, started operating. Um, we're going, trying to get the um, um, World Cup. I think we've already got the. I can't remember if we've got sorry, the Cricket World Cup. Sorry, um, there's yeah. a couple of other people who've got questions. Okay, right. So well, I'll just finish off quickly in yeah. that case, if I may. Uh, so I think you're talking about coalition. This gentleman here referred to the fact that um, people um, that we're too late. I was actually um, evicted from Clays Lane, which is one of the sites which was on the Olympic Park. We tried to uh, put forward all of the arguments which have been put forward here. The lie about the budget, the straightforward lie, which we knew was a lie. The fact that they lied about the fact that there would be a, a, um, a, a, a legacy from the Athletes Village was complete rubbish, it's simply double counting. At the moment, I'm trying to discover whether or not the athlete, the present park, which they're claiming, the new park, will be anything like the size they claim, which it won't. Okay. The point I'm making here is it's about a coalition of interests who will use whatever powers or, or lies they can to achieve their goal. Could I just take another question? Yeah, go. Thank you. Um, a, um, I just wanted to add something very short, which is if you've been looking at Dawson Square development as well, because that had lots of uh, local community um, opposition and is a, this 40 million plan regeneration with TfL, Barrett and Hackney Council together. Um, I was just wondering if you Sorry, had Which it. development? Yeah, Dawson Square. Oh, Dawson Square, yeah. Uh, it's the same, it's called Inward Investment. Um, Mrs Thatcher, uh, in her administration, stripped local authorities of planning powers redevelopment funds um, and pulled the plug on what used to be called council housing. Uh, local authorities are now in the position, and the Olympics is exactly that kind of project, uh, where power lies with uh, city investors um, who can basically get what they want 
out of local authorities uh, because they've got the money and, and councils like Hackney and the four councils in the Olympic boroughs do not have any real powers of control or decision. They have to go where the money goes. Um, so the process is the same. They're dependent on money from the city for their projects. The result in terms of Dalston Square is this absolutely hideous, oversized um, housing project right in the middle of the architectural and town centre of, of Dalston. It's appalling. Combined with uh, the positive uh, dereliction, assisting the dereliction of one of the oldest um, shopping terraces right next door to it. Over a period of 10 years, they've just let it rot. Um, and they've allowed developers to burn some of it out. Classic techniques from New York in the 70s and 80s. I mean, a whole era, a whole, uh, lots of aspects of London are being distorted by the Olympics. Uh, the connection of the trains, uh, the planned train uh, east-west um, rail connections, uh, a whole load of uh, uh, apparently unassociated parts of London are being negatively affected by it. And not everyone's making the connection about why. running out of time now so um, the chap um, at the, at the um, back had his hand up for ages so uh, but it's got to be a very short question no more than five words <laughs> fast and furious your mind is about the, the legacy and the urban regeneration mentioned earlier I wonder what do the speakers think of the whole point of restructuring a very bleak and terribly deprived area of London called the East End, and do you not think that the new investment is a positive move, despite all the ramifications of bureaucracy and corruption? And the chap in front, um, yes. Yeah, so, so to the, the volunteering, I live in East, in Hamlet's East End News runs big adverts for volunteers, so you've got the diversity issue, which is interesting. Who are they going to draw on for the labour force of volunteers? And the other thing is, I suppose, just really get another comment. I think that the IOC and the development agencies should be given a little bit of credit for a sense of humour for calling the, the shop in Mal Westfield. <laughs> and there's one more, one more, one more question. Um, the chap here with the baseball cap, and that, and then they can answer. Just go. You go need on. a mic, I think. Yeah. Just, um, what can be done? There's surprisingly little um, reporting about those very clear conflicts of interests of David Higgins. I'm, I was amazed that so little was said about it. Uh, I mean, I watched that clip that I showed tonight, and I thought, oh, he's Australian. I, you know, Google him. I mean, there he is. You know, he's handing out contracts to the company he worked for, for as chief exec for 10 years. Um, 
So, um, yeah, there needs to be a hell of a lot more um, exposure in the press. Questioning, I mean, I think it's just, you know, if everything's sweet, then fine. But, I mean, there should be more looking into it. Um, uh, the, the, the comment at the back about the, you know, I, I really just have to say that if there are any benefits in East London, and I, I, I used to work there in, in the 80s, and I, uh, you know, I was there for living there, working there for like 10 years, and there was all this stuff about the way Canary Wharf and Docklands was going to really benefit. And, and it just goes on and on and on. And you can go through history and you can go up to even before the Second World War. People keep coming in and saying, we're going to improve this area. And, uh, and really, all you really get is displacement of, of the local people. Um, it's not really benefiting local people because the so-called affordable housing, if you look at the prices, is not really affordable. It's just not really what hugely expensive. And as, uh, as I was trying to get across, most of the actual benefits in East London have come from other schemes that have been well-developed well before the Olympics came along. And um, I, I, we all have to wait and see how much real benefit uh, there is in East London. Richard, I'll just add one comment briefly <laughs> in relation to your thing about, you know, how can we get it, these guys? The biggest political scandal in this country at the moment is um, members of parliament's expenses. That whole story was unearthed over a period of five years by one journalist called Heather Brook. Um, and it's worth looking at her website called Your Right to Know. Um, and she had been doing congressional investigations in the States about the expenses of um, senators and such. Um, and which, when she came to this country, she was saying, well, it would be interesting to look at a similar thing in the Houses of Parliament. And she was amazed to discover that in distinction to the American situation, where there's complete transparency, um, there was this veil of secrecy over the whole thing. And she kept putting in freedom of information um, requests um, and getting refused and had people turn their back on her. Uh, by chance, she bumped into a barrister who said, I'm very interested in what you're doing. I will support you in any court case that you want to take against these people. It, it took her five years. She eventually it came to a case in the High Court where the Houses of Parliament lost and were told to reveal this information. At that point, um, bigger guns in journalism swept in from the wings, namely the Daily Telegraph, and took over some of her information then started looking for their started doing their own digging. That was all initiated by one person and the Freedom of Information Act. We're beginning to use Freedom of Information Act for very similar purposes, but it's very labor intensive stuff. It can be done. The way power gets away with abuse of power is by hiding the devil in the details. <coughs> um, you can't get at them unless eventually you can take them to court because that's where lawyers job it is to deal with the details, come up against the other lawyers who've written the contracts, who've hidden all the stuff, the dirt in the, the details, uh, where it all resides. That's where the real story of abuse of power always lies, it's in the details. Okay. Um. Well, I, I just want to make one last thing, which is that it's not too late for there to be a campaign to make sure that all of those people who work on the Olympics are paid a living wage. And if you look into that story, 
there's been promises made that that will happen and, uh, and it's been reneged on already. Okay, well I'd like to thank, uh, we've run horribly over time, okay. the, budget, the Olympics will run over budget no doubt, yeah, but, um, might do. um, thank you to Martin and to Mark and thank you for your questions, thank you very much, thank you. Yeah.